0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Tonight we're going to look at uh, two scenes, the two chapters, chapters 8 and 9 from the book. Uh, The Roman trial of Jesus. Last week we looked at his uh, arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane after his prayer. And we looked at his Jewish trial when he was accused and found guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God. And uh, this week we're going to look at the Roman trial. And there are different aspects to these different trials from from the Jewish side with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin... The charges were religious in nature, dealing with the law of Moses, so claiming to be equal with God, claiming that God was his father, uh, claiming to be the Christ, the son of God, all those things were under the, the Mosaic law, under the Jewish law, uh, religious law of blasphemy. This week, we're going to look at the other side. Um, the, the Jews cannot put Jesus to death, we'll see that in a minute, and so they take him to Rome. And uh, under the governor, Pontius Pilate, there have to be different charges. Um, Pilate doesn't care about the religious side of things, and we're going to see that. Uh, The religious leaders can't bring those religious charges in a capital sense, so the charges have to be different, and we're going to see what those different charges are as Jesus is tried and found guilty of treason. The Roman Empire. So what we're going to read today, all of it, both his trial with Rome and his crucifixion, take place on Friday, Good Friday, April 7th, A.D. 30. A few things to think about as we begin, though. Um, we talked last week about uh, his Jewish trial and the irony that Jesus is there being tried by these people who presume to judge him, even though he is the judge. So what is ironic about Jesus' Jewish trial. Jesus' Jewish trial was before the religious leaders by the law of Moses. It's ironic because Jesus, as God incarnate, is the lawgiver, and he is the perfect lawkeeper. So one irony in his Jewish trial is that he's being tried by the law, even though he himself, as God in human flesh, is the author of the law and the perfect keeper of the law. He's convicted of blasphemy for claiming to be who he is. He's convicted of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, which he is. And as I just said, he is the one who will judge them. He is the one who will judge them. There's also irony in the Roman trial. You know, from the religious side, with the Jewish sect, in terms of his messiahship, his uh, his divinity, his being the giver and the keeper of the law. There's the irony there. But what about the Roman trial? Well, he's being tried by earthly rulers. He's being tried by earthly rulers, who have their authority. The Bible tells us by his command. It is Jesus, the sovereign of the universe who gives these earthly rulers their power. And yet they think that in this situation they have the power over him. He is accused of treason for claiming to be who he is, that is, the king. So with the Jewish leaders, he's accused of being uh, a blasphemer because he claims to be the son of God, which he is. And now in front of Rome, he's accused of treason because he claims to be king, which he is. And he is the one who will judge all the kings of the earth. Just like he will judge the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he will sit in judgment over all the kings of earth, including Herod and Pontius Pilate. As we look at the charges brought against Jesus, um, we see, of course, a different facet, a different set of charges brought before Pontius Pilate. Look here in John 18, beginning in verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man to you for Passover. So do you want me to release to you this king of the Jews? They cried out again, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So the other gospels sort of give more details to the actual accusations. John gives us more detail as to the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. The the charges that are brought against Jesus really stem from this conversation, his claim to be king, his claim to be the Messiah. So number one, the first charge the Jews bring against Jesus is inciting the nation. Inciting the nation, or you could just say rebellion, uh, stirring up the zealots, insurrection, uprising against Rome. Uh, Anyone claims to be lord and king in the Roman Empire besides Caesar, it is seen as an act of treason, insurrection, rebellion, uprising, inciting the Jewish nation to rise up against Rome, which of course Jesus never did. Number two, he was accused of forbidding the payment of taxes to Caesar forbidding the payment of taxes to Caesar. This was a false accusation made on a misunderstanding of what we read a few weeks ago when he was asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And remember what Jesus said, give me the coin whose image is on the coin, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And so in that statement, someone misconstrued and misunderstood and brings a false accusation that he said we should not pay taxes to Caesar, which again would have been an act of rebellion or insurrection. Number three, making himself out to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Messiah. Now, this was that double issue for the Jews and for Rome. For the Jews, from the religious side, blasphemy, claiming equality with God, claiming to be the Son of God. But from the Roman side, claiming to be the Messiah was claiming to be Israel's deliverer, claiming to be Israel's king. And again, that goes back to the incitement and the rebellion and the insurrection. So this, this is the, the basis of the three, trial, the three accusations that the Jews bring against Jesus before Rome. Now, the interesting question is, why did they have to bring him to Pilate anyway? Uh, if you notice that in the text there, uh, John eighteen thirty one, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And they're right, especially during Passover, These high holy days of the Jewish faith, they could not put anyone to death. Other than that, they couldn't put anyone to death anyway normally because Rome uh, retained the power of the sword. They didn't want people just taking justice into their own hands. No matter what nation or group they conquered, they wanted to hold the power of the sword for themselves so as to hold order and control over the people themselves. And so the Jews, the Jewish nation, could not execute anyone. If they wanted Jesus dead... Uh, except for stoning him illegally, which they could have done outside the city. Uh, but, but notice what John says. This happened to fulfill what Jesus had spoken, because he needed to die in a particular way, i.e. crucifixion. And the Jews were not going to crucify anyone. That was a Roman form of judgment, which we'll see in a little while. So all of this plays into God's sovereignty and God's providence. And bringing about the way Jesus is going to die... But in their eyes, they couldn't put anyone to death, so they had to bring him before Pilate to have Pilate do it for him. Luke 23 um, gives us three times, and we saw a little bit of that here in John 18, but Luke 23 uh, specifically gives us three times that Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent. And if you're kind of paying attention to the charges, there's the incitement, the forbidding of paying taxes, and claiming to be the Messiah, three main charges, that is answered by three declarations of innocence. So Pilate's verdicts correspond to those three charges. They bring three charges... Summed up in those three charges, and Pilate declares him innocent three times. He comes back to the people three times, according to Luke's gospel. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. He's innocent. He hasn't broken any laws. And he ends up, of course, uh, washing his hands of the whole thing and delivering him over to them if they want to have him killed. This brings us to phase two. Phase two. As Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing and delivers Jesus over, he sends him to sort of the Jewish puppet king, Herod Antipas. Now, if you pay attention to the Gospels, you recognize the name Herod. King Herod from earlier in the Gospels, the one that tried to kill Jesus and killed all the children, boys under two, remember in in Matthew's Gospel, this is his son. Just as evil, just as wicked, he had had just as many run-ins with Jesus as Herod his father had with John the Baptist and had been called out on his sin there too. So this is that Herod Antipas and this is only recorded in Luke's gospel. So let's look at Luke's gospel chapter 23 and this will point out a few things here in the second phase of his Roman trial. So what would happen uh, when Rome would come in and take over a region or a kingdom is not necessarily just topple everything and insert their own rulers, but they would establish puppet rulers, puppet kings, that would ultimately show allegiance to Rome and do what Rome said. So in addition to Pilate being the governor of the whole region of Judea, King Herod was still technically king of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel though he was a puppet king for Rome, evil, wicked, and sinful. Now let's look at how this plays, but claiming to be a Jew at the same time. Let's look at how he responds to this, uh, Jesus being sent to him. Look down at Luke 23, verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. So he sees a way out. Ah, you're a Galilean. I know whose jurisdiction you're in. You're in Herod's jurisdiction. I'm going to send you to him and get you off of my hands. He's a Jew. You're a Jew. This is a Jewish problem. I'm going to be rid of this whole thing. And he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction and sent him over to Herod, who was himself Jerusalem at the time. He was therefore Passover. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. There's something that's reflected in Herod's treatment of Jesus that shows us what the Jewish unbelievers had done to that day. If you remember, as things were coming to sort of a fever pitch between Jesus and the religious leaders, maybe Matthew 12, Matthew 13, remember what they ultimately asked Jesus to do? As they kept trying to trap him with their questions and trap him with their their false laws and customs and traditions, remember what they resulted to at the very end in Matthew 12-ish? Oh, Jesus, show us a sign. Remember that? Show us a sign so we'll believe who you are. And of course, remember Jesus said, I'm not going to show you any sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, and he was talking about his own resurrection. That's the only miracle you're going to see. And even then, Jesus says to the religious leaders, you're not going to believe it. So if we see that in the person of Herod here, it's sort of personified, isn't it? We come to this last instance of Jesus before an unbelieving Jewish person, this king, this wicked king, and what does that person ask him? King Jesus, I've been waiting on you. I'm glad to see you because I want you to do a trick for me. I want you to do a magic trick. Do one of your miracles. You know, Turn water into wine. Raise the dead. Do all the stuff you've been doing. So as to entertain Herod. Entertain his court. And all of it was a mockery of who Jesus was. And you see that immediately when Jesus refuses to do that. They immediately go into mocking him and putting a fake robe and the fake crown of thorns we see later and mocking him as the, the king of the Jews. I think it's interesting that when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, Pastor Josh, remember from a few weeks ago, preached this passage, 1 Corinthians 1. Remember in, in 1 Corinthians 1 what Paul says the Jews want? He says, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and Him crucified. And even by Paul's day, he said the Jews are still after the same thing. They want to see proof, they want to see signs, they want to see miracles even as the Greeks want eloquence and wisdom and power in their speech. And Paul says, we're not going to give either one what they want. We preach Christ and him crucified. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to salvation for those who are being saved. So even then, we see that tie to the unbelieving Jewish nation, here personified in the person of Herod Antipas, that if you don't show me a sign, I'm not going to believe in you. Uh, this, This example of unbelief on the part of the Jewish nation. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. According to Luke's gospel, he goes back to Pilate. Um, Herod doesn't want anything to do with this. He probably does not want to anger the people. Jesus is popular with the people. That's been the problem from the beginning. And now Herod, a Jewish king, does not want to be seen as crucifying a Jewish person for Rome, especially with all the Jews there for Passover. He doesn't want anything to do with this, so he sends Jesus back to Pilate to try to make this final decision. Um, For this last part of the talk, let's go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, let's hear what Matthew's report is of Jesus' appearance before Pilate. Matthew 27, starting in verse 15. Matthew 27, verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. We read about this at the end of of John's account. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So they went and gathered Barabbas, and Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For they knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So Pilate sees a way out here, doesn't he? I have this custom. There's debate whether it was really a custom or not, or whether Pilate just sort of made it up to to try to get this out 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 of his hands. He says, you know what? I have this custom to release someone to you. So instead of crucifying Jesus, how about we crucify this criminal, this murderer, this thief, this robber Barabbas? And it seems like an easy choice, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, well, give us Jesus and crucify the murderer. And he sees a way out of this whole thing. In verse 19, it says, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, he comes back, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. I have to deal this with my kids sometimes, you know, when when you think you're going to offer them an easy choice. Uh, Anna is, you know, picky about, like, where she wants to eat for supper sometimes if we go out. And when we go to Amarillo, there's, like, one of two places that she wants to go. Uh, Like, what used to be Fazoli's, now it's, you know, Cane's or Jimmy John's or something. And sometimes Jessica and I just don't want, you know, raising Cane's every time we go to Amarillo. So we try to give her a choice without Cane's. Do you want to go here or here? And you know the kid, and she's going to say... I want to go to Raising Cane's. I want to go to Jimmy John's. Now you think that it's going to be an easy option. How about we go here where lately I've been trying to convince her to go to eat hibachi with me which she does not want to do. So I'm trying to give her these choices. It's going to be really good. You can get steak, you can get this I can see Pilate sort of pandering to the crowd in that way, don't you? This is an easy choice, Barabbas or Jesus, murderer or uh, you you brought these false accusations against this man that I find no guilt in. Who do you want? And he thinks this is easy, they're going to choose Barabbas, but instead they choose Jesus. And he comes back again one more time, Barabbas or Jesus, and they say Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, What shall I do with just Jesus who is called Christ? They said, Let him be crucified. He said, why? Oh, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, the opposite of what he wanted, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, and hear this, this chilling judgment they pronounced on themselves as a nation. His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So in this final trial of Jesus before Pilate, Pilate faces some real tension. Um, What tension did Pilate think he faced? He thought he faced the tension between his government of Rome and the Jewish people. And this was a constant tension in that land, as you can imagine, trying to maintain peace with this conquered Jewish obstinate people and maintaining peace for the government of Rome, which was his chief objective in that area. So he thought that was his tension, appease Rome, if this really is an insurrection, quell it and put it to death, or tried to maintain peace with the Jewish people, what did they want? Well, the priest wanted Jesus crucified, so he thought this was his tension. His desire to fulfill his responsibilities to Rome, and his desire to keep peace with the Jews. But the real tension Pilate faced was not between Rome and the Jewish people. The real tension that Pilate faced was between heaven and earth. The heavenly government of God Almighty in his anointed King Jesus versus the earthly rule and authority and power either of Rome or the Jewish people. Now, he did not recognize this as his chief tension, but that is the real tension behind this decision. Pilate, in this last-ditch effort to have Jesus released, puts forward Barabbas, a criminal, a robber, a thief, a murderer, There's something interesting about Barabbas' name. If you know just a little bit of uh, Hebrew there, you see Bar Abbas, and you might be familiar with the term Abba, which means father, and Bar just means son. Uh, Barabbas' name literally means son of Abba, or the father's son. There's intense irony there, isn't it? Because the one that Pilate has before him in Jesus is literally the son of the Father, the son of the living God. Whereas Barabbas is a knockoff, a criminal, a thief, a robber. Yet the people choose the knockoff son of Abba in place of the real son of Abba that is Jesus and in the end according to John's gospel they showed their real allegiance John 19:15 you'll have to turn there but when Pilate says fine here's your king John 19:15 the Jewish religious leaders say we have no king but Caesar We have no king but Caesar now the Jewish religious leaders had no real devotion to Caesar they hated him the whole nation hated Caesar and Rome this was placating This was flattery. They were just saying what Rome wanted to hear to get their way. Oh, we have no king but Caesar. Now, what they thought they were doing was rejecting Jesus as king. But literally, with their words, they said, we have no king but Caesar. Not just dismissing Jesus as their king, but dismissing God as their king. And in this last-ditch effort to get what they want, they're willing to say the unthinkable. Caesar is Lord. According to the text, they finally get what they want. And Pilate releases Jesus to be crucified, even though he wants uh, to have no record of handling it, uh, this thing himself. In the book on page 115, um, in Final Reflections, here's, here's a quote Beginning right there under Final Reflections, page 115. The most important truths in this chapter are Christological. Jesus, the Son of God and King of Israel, was condemned to die by crucifixion. We see here the Savior of the world mocked, beaten, and rejected by his own people. He was condemned by a man who believed him to be innocent The one condemned to death spoke the world into existence and is the object of angelic worship. He fed the hungry, healed the sick, cast out demons, and resuscitated the dead, and still they hated him. He came into the world to save sinners. He did not come to be served, but to serve. We should stand, or better, fall on our faces in amazement at Jesus' wondrous love. We must never forget, as we consider these events, all that Jesus experienced for our salvation. Before he was nailed even to the cross, he was despised and rejected. The Apostle Peter put it this way, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. As Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me except that which has been given to you from above. And so Jesus, knowing who the ultimate actor is, his very father, who's handing him over to this wicked pagan nation to be executed, he knows that's the plan, he knows that's his father's will, he's accepted that, he's embraced that, and so he needs not lift up his voice in his own defense. Next, we move into the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ on Good Friday, April 7th, A.D. 30. And we begin with the mockery of Jesus. Let's look here in Matthew's Gospel while we're still here. Matthew 27, uh, starting in verse 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Again, that that mocking him as a king with the scarlet robe and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, a little stick, a little play scepter. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put away or put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The mockery and torture that Jesus endured at the hands of Rome begin here with his being stripped of his clothes, which would have been very shameful for a Jewish man or anyone, for that matter. Instead of a regal robe, he's given this mock robe. Instead of a real crown, he's given a crown of thorns, which surely pierced his brow and his head and and caused the blood to stream down his face. He was given a little toy scepter to pretend like he's king in their eyes and they take it and they beat him with it. He was spit on, he was stricken, he was hit. The other gospels tell us that Pilate, we read this earlier, had him scourged or flogged before he delivered him over to be crucified. And you don't need, you don't need me to rehearse for you uh, the Roman practice of scourging. This was not the Jewish 39 lashes with a whip. This is not the 39 lashes that Paul and others endured uh, that would have been with a whip, simple, as painful as it was, uh, simple procedure. This was a cat of nine tails, as you've heard, with, with nine individual strands. And on that strand embedded bits of glass and bone and, and metal and whatever, whatever other sort of sadistic pieces they could put into that whip. So that when it came around the, the flesh of the victim, it was intended to strip flesh from flesh and muscle from the bone. And it was not uncommon for people to die of this procedure before they were even led away to be crucified. And yet Jesus is subjected to this terrible form of torture before being led away to Calvary. Next we read that he's given his cross... And he's sent on his journey to Golgotha, down the famous way of suffering, the Via Dolorosa, there in Jerusalem. We have different names for this area. Golgotha is the one we read of in the scripture. That's the Aramaic word that literally means the place of the skull. Golgotha means the place of the skull. And there's there's no agreement as to where this is. There's no agreement as to why it's called this. There are some hills in Jerusalem and outside the city that people think this must be it because it looks like a skull on the side of the mountain or on the side of the cliff. Uh, But others say, no, it was just called that because it's where people went to die. It's where people were executed. There may have been literal skulls and skeletons uh, lying around from the Roman victims. So there's no telling where this is or why it's called that, but Jesus is led away to the place of the skull uh, the Latin word for Golgotha is Calvary, a version of that from which we get our word, Calvary. So it's all referring to that same mountain of crucifixion. So as Jesus is being led away um, for his crucifixion, let's begin reading. Mm, let's go over to Mark's Gospel, Mark 15. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 20. Mark 15:20. when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him mixed uh, wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Uh, go over to Luke's gospel as well, Luke 23. Let's read one more account that we're going to talk about. Luke 23. After the uh, episode with Simon the Cyrene carrying the cross of Jesus, Luke includes another detail. Luke 23. Look down at verse uh, 27. Luke 23, 27 there they followed him a great multitude of people and of the women, women who were mourning and lamenting for him, which was a common Jewish thing as people were carried off to be killed or executed. You'd have a throng of women uh, being very dramatic and very loud and they're weeping and they're wailing for the victim. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. I think that's very interesting. As, as earlier, the, the Jewish religious leaders said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Jesus turns to them now and says, weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do the, these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus again prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the horror that would fall on the Jewish people at that time. So what pictures of God's sovereignty do we see here, even in this terrible scene? Interestingly enough, that as Jesus becomes too weak to carry his cross, and he falls beneath the weight of the cross, this random, quote-unquote, random man, Simon the Cyrene, from you know, what we would know as Libya and northern Africa, there for Passover, a Jewish believer, he was called upon to carry the cross for Jesus. And Mark is sure to tell us this is the father of two guys, Rufus and Alexander. Now, this is a lot of piecing things together that may or may not be there, but it is interesting. Why would Mark, the gospel writer, include the names of those two sons? It's as if to say that by the time Mark was writing his gospel, the Christian community might have known who these two men were. And it's also interesting that in Romans 16, 13, Paul makes mention of someone at the church in Rome called Rufus. Now, it's a stretch to say that is the same person. But it is worth piecing together to see that Mark makes sure to mention his name, insinuating that the Christian community knew who he was. And Paul also mentions this same name in Romans 16:13. So even there we see maybe an inkling of God's sovereignty, in this random man chosen to carry the cross, his random sons that were present, uh, all under God's providence and God's sovereignty. We also see it in Jesus' prophecy to these women. He, he's warning these women, "You might mourn for me now, but what you don't understand is this is part of God's plan. And equally part of that plan is not a generation from now when Jerusalem will be destroyed. And you will wish that you had never been born. So even as Jesus is going to the cross, we see these little glimmers of hope as God Perhaps God at work in Simon the Cyrene, at work in the hearts of his sons as they see this man Jesus carrying his cross. And maybe later learned of the resurrection and maybe became believers and perhaps even became leaders at the church in Rome that Paul wrote to. We also see Jesus saying that God is more powerful than all of this and he will judge Jerusalem and judge the unbelieving Jewish community for this sin. So even here we see God's sovereignty and providence on display. So we come to the place of crucifixion, and um, we, we, of course, know that it's divided into two sets of three hours, the first three hours and, and the final three hours. As we come to the place of crucifixion, we have to ask, why crucifixion? Why was it necessary that Jesus die in this way? And he had said several things throughout the Gospels, and, and John is is peculiar particularly interested to tell us Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was to die and we saw that earlier it was going to be crucifixion it had to be crucifixion and the answer might come to us partly in Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 through 23 when we read as Moses tells the people that if a man hangs on a tree he is cursed as if to say there's no, shame, no more shameful way for a person to die than to be hanged on a tree. Naked, hung there to die on a tree. Cursed is everyone, Moses says, who hangs on a tree. No other form of punishment, not burning, not stoning, not mere hanging, no other form of punishment or death could encapsulate what the cross meant to the Jewish people. He was killed at the hands of a pagan nation, on a pagan system of execution, hanged on a tree as a curse, naked, exposed, shamed. No other form of punishment or execution could have matched the cross in this show of pain and torture and shame. All because Jesus was meant to become a curse for us. What is significant about Jesus' placement between two criminals? We read that when he comes to the place uh, to die, Calvary, Golgotha, he is crucified and hung between two other criminals. Well, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12 says that the suffering servant, Jesus, he was counted among the rebels. Even here in his death, Jesus is identifying with sinners in their death. He dies alongside sinners to show that he was taking sin upon himself. Jesus was dying the death of sinners, the worst imaginable imaginable form of death in this time, the death of sinners, because he was dying in the place of sinners. If you have a separate handout, um, I need to grab one for myself, on the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. Let's look just quickly at the first uh, three. As Jesus is crucified, the first saying from the cross that we have recorded, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Now, um, Jesus has said a lot. He's taught a lot. He is the sovereign master of the universe, the incarnate God, the judge of all the world. What could he have said in this moment? He could have reminded them as he did the women on the way. He could have reminded them of the judgment that's coming. He could have reminded them of God's anger and God's wrath and God's condemnation for what they're doing. But instead, he chooses to pray this prayer of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, Jesus, in saying, Father, forgive them, is not pardoning their sin. It is not erasing them and making it okay. He isn't expunging their sin and making them believers. That's not what's going on here. He's asking God not to hold this to their account. Much in the same way that you remember Stephen in Acts when he is stoned. As he's tried for blasphemy and carried out to be stoned, he's being put to death. What does he say? Father, do not hold this sin, uh, or God, do not hold this sin against their account. That is the very prayer that Jesus prays here. It shows his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his love. The next statement we have from Jesus from the cross comes in John 19. Of all the things that Jesus could have been thinking about, that could have been on his mind, he sees his mother, and he sees the disciple whom he loved. He says to Mary, woman, here is your son. And he says to the apostle John, presumably, here is your mother. And it says from that day forward, he took Mary into his own home and cared for her. Now, the Roman Catholic Church makes a big deal of of this verse. Because they claim that this is Jesus telling the entire church and community of believers that Mary is their mother. And that that is not what Jesus intends here. We've got to put all the things in context and see what he means. The context tells us what he means. John understood what was being said here. I'm her son and I'm dying. Now you need to take care of her even as she cares for you. And John tells us from that day forward, he took Mary into his own home. That's what's being said here. Again, we see Jesus' compassion, his grace, his concern, his care for others. Father, forgive them for what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Take care of my mother. You take care of this disciple. Jesus, even in these torturous moments of death, caring for others, praying for others, seeing to the needs of others as he had done all along. Luke 23, 43, we have probably one of the most precious sayings from the cross. We said that he was crucified between two thieves, two criminals. And at first, it seems they're both mocking Jesus. They're both asking Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, if you really are the King, you know, get yourself off the cross and and take us with you while you're at it. But then it seems that one thief's heart begins to change. And as the other thief continues to mock Jesus, the other thief says, you need to stop because this man really is the king. And how do we see that? He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. A couple things going on here. That thief understands his sin. And though he did not yet have time to, quote unquote, repent of any living sin, there was repentance in his heart because he realized he was a sinner and confessed it. There was repentance. There was faith. He tells Jesus truly who he is, and he shows his faith in who Jesus is by asking him to remember him. You are a king. You are coming into your kingdom, and when you do, remember me. A couple things worth noting here about this thief's uh, salvation. This thief was unable to be baptized. He was not baptized by sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. He was unable to get down off the cross and do any good works. He was unable to perform any final acts of penance or forgiveness or merit to earn some sort of standing with God. He merely called out to Jesus in repentance and faith. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. I don't know if you've seen the little clip of uh, Alistair Begg going around. It became very famous a couple months ago. Um, Alistair Begg and uh, the man on the middle cross. It's kind of funny at first because it's Begg in his typical preaching fashion sort of joking around about this thief when he gets to heaven and Peter is coming up you know, trying to find the guy's record and I don't don't know who you are, what your name is I don't see your baptism date, I don't see your good works, I don't see anything here and of course it comes down to this very serious moment Begg says that the thief looks at Peter, looks at the angel and says no I'm only I don't know why I'm here either. The man on the middle cross said I could come and isn't that the essence of salvation? The man on the middle cross said, I could come. Go look that up and um, watch the whole sermon, not just the clip, um, but it'll, it'll light you up for a little while. So you look at the first three hours of Christ's crucifixion. Uh, we have these, these scenes and these sayings. And we come to the final three hours of Christ's crucifixion. And the Bible tells us that beginning, at the beginning of this final three hours, the sky was dark. And this is not just some dramatic sign by God. This is, this is judgment by God. In Amos chapter eight, verses nine through 10, we see that when God judges His people, His people, He promises darkness. We just went through this in Exodus chapter 10 with the plagues, and one of the final plagues was what? The darkness over the land. And I talked about how this was more than just God making the people unable to see. This was a physical manifestation of their spiritual blindness and their spiritual darkness. And what better time to bring this darkness over the land except when this final act of blasphemy and hatred against God is being committed as they crucify the Son of God. And their spiritual darkness and their spiritual foolishness and their unbelief is made manifest for everyone to see. And God says, darkness will cover the face of the earth as a sign of my judgment on your spiritual blindness. It's really a picture of the whole thing here, isn't it? As the earth goes black and goes dark, it's a picture of the darkness we see in those people's hearts. And then we come to the final four statements of Jesus from the cross. As darkness covers the face of the earth and Jesus' death is growing closer and closer, Jesus cries out, Matthew 27:46, Mark 15:34, "My God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me?" our old translations say. Now we have to be careful here, because with all good intentions, uh, a lot of preachers and Christians go off the rails into unintentional heresy here, because there, there's never a time when God the Father is separated or somehow divided from God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit for that matter. There's never a time when there's a riff in the Trinity, when there's a break in the fellowship. There's never a time when that's the case. If that were to happen, the entire cosmos would just blow into oblivion because God would cease to be God. There's not a riff in their relationship. The Father still loves the Son, and the Son still loves the Father and the Holy Spirit. And their oneness and their unity is still intact and still in perfect fellowship. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 22. In fact, most scholars believe that Jesus was singing Psalm 22 on the cross. A psalm of dereliction. A psalm of asking God where you are. So, this is not about the Father turning away from the Son and somehow there being a riff in their relationship. This is about Jesus praying the Psalms, putting Himself in the place of David the King, and saying, Oh God, in this moment, it is as if you have turned your back on me. It is as if you have abandoned me because at that moment, the Father was placing your sin and my sin. On his son and he was crushing him for our sin God why have you abandoned me the fifth statement John 19 28 I'm thirsty seems you know, so simple and such an odd thing to include in this list of very theological very gracious eloquent sayings from the cross and Jesus says I thirst I'm thirsty We see a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus here as he's about to die, another sign of his humanity. Jesus is truly God and truly man. His pain is real, it's not imaginary, it's not merely spiritual. His pain, his anguish is real, and it bears itself out even as he says something as simple as, I'm thirsty, I'm tired. I'm worn, I'm dying, and then we come to the moment of his death. John nineteen thirty says, Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished, you might have heard it said, is an accounting term. That a person has come to the end of the ledger, it seems the balance has been paid, and the stamp is put on there that says. Tetelestai, it is accomplished, it's done. This is significant for us because I think sometimes we tend to portray the atonement of Christ as something that is merely possible, something that is merely potential. We say with gladness, Jesus died for our sins, but there's always this sort of possibility, potentiality to it. If you do this. If you do this. But Jesus did not say when he died on the cross, there, now the door is opened and, and you can do what you want with it. Jesus didn't say on the cross, there, now, you're, now your debt has been paid and then you can either choose it or reject it, whatever you want to do. Now Jesus says earlier in John, what did he say? My sheep have been given to me by my Father. I lay my life down for the sheep. I will lose none of them. I lay my life down for them. And here, at the end of John's gospel, he says what? It is accomplished. Not potential. Not possible. But it's done. Every last sheep accounted for. Every last sheep atoned for. So that when the Spirit comes to call those sheep... Jesus says, every sheep that the Father has given me will come to me. There is finality and there is certainty here. And last, Jesus prays, Father, into your hands. I commit or I entrust my spirit. So this goes to fly in the face of anyone who would say that Jesus went on uh, to go suffer in hell or that the atonement was somehow unfinished and Jesus had to do more suffering after. No, he says it's finished, and where Jesus goes when he dies, his spirit goes to be with his father until his resurrection. The events that accompany Jesus' death uh, are interesting, and we don't have time to elaborate too much here. But you'll know from reading the Gospels that the most significant event, especially to the Jewish people, Matthew records in Matthew 27 was when the curtain in the temple was torn not just torn remember the detail torn from top to bottom as if to say from above God tore the curtain the tearing of the temple veil was a sign of the judgment that's coming the destruction of the temple because with the death and resurrection of Jesus the temple is rendered useless Do you understand this? And Jesus pays the final sacrifice, he dies, he's buried, and he rises again, the temple means nothing. And not 40 years later, it will be destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. It means nothing anymore, because Jesus paid it all. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, and the ultimate high priest. It's a sign of what is to come in judgment, but it's also a sign of what is to come in salvation. Because the author of Hebrews tells us in multiple places that you can go look at later. The author of Hebrews tells us in multiple places that this was the sign that now we can come with boldness and with confidence into the holy places. Not by the means of blood of goats and lambs and doves or even a priest or even the high priest. But we come through the blood of our sacrifice, our great high priest, the Lord Jesus The author of Hebrews says the veil was not just the curtain in the temple. The author of Hebrews says the real veil was Jesus' body. And as it was torn apart for us, we received access into the Holy of Holies. Not the temple in Jerusalem, but the heavenly Holy of Holies where God is. That is the blessing we have as new covenant believers in Jesus We no longer have the shadows and the types of the temple and the veils and the sacrifice and the priesthood. We have the substance. We have the real thing in the person and the work of Christ who became our access to God the Father. Jesus is our sacrifice. He is our priest. He is the temple. He is the veil because Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. We have the confirmation of Jesus' death. As Jesus dies on the cross, he expires before the other thieves do, and they have to break the thieves' legs so that they'll die quickly. sun was setting. Sabbath was upon them. They couldn't leave them on the cross. They break their legs so that they die quicker. But Jesus was already dead. And even then we think, well, what a, what a happy thing for Jesus not to have his legs broken. <laughs> That's a big deal, isn't it? Do you remember Exodus chapter 12 and how Moses told the people to choose their lamb? Spotless lamb, one year old, and not a bone can be broken. And here the Lamb of God dies in our place with not one bone broken. Finally, they pierce his side with a spear, blood and water flow out. It reminds us of what the prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah 12.10. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn as one mourns for their only son. Even as Jesus dies, the fulfillment of prophecy doesn't stop. His bones aren't broken. He's pierced. Blood and water flow forth just like water flow from the rock we talked about Sunday. Even here in his death, these pictures keep coming of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Lastly, and quickly, we come to the burial of Jesus' body and the securing of the tomb, and we see some signs of hope. If you know a little bit about this story from John's gospel and the others, who came to bury Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Pharisees, religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders. Well, I thought all of them were bad. <laughs> I thought they were all unbelievers. It, it seems not these two. Somewhere along the way, something, the Holy Spirit, got a hold of Nicodemus. Maybe as he was traveling home that night after his conversation with Jesus. Something got a hold of Joseph of Arimathea, and there's been a change of heart. And they come to Pilate secretly by night because they know this isn't going to be popular with their, with their friends in the Sanhedrin. They come and ask for Jesus' body so that they can bury him with honor, even then fulfilling prophecy that the Messiah will be buried with the rich and with the wealthy he will have his grave, Isaiah says. Another sign of hope comes even as they guard and seal the tomb. Even as they seal the tomb, we see a sign of hope because this is almost like a little forward to what is to come. One of my favorite Christmas movies, Christmas books is Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. Do you remember how The Christmas Carol begins? Marley was dead to begin with. That's how it starts, because Dickens says nothing else is going to make sense in this story unless you understand that up front. Marley was dead, and as we enter into Easter weekend, we come into next week when we talk about the resurrection, we've got to understand this, first and foremost, that Jesus died. He really, physically, literally died, and he was buried, and he was put in a cold Dark tomb for three days. And just like Dickens says, nothing of wonder will come from my story unless we understand that. Nothing of wonder will make sense over the weekend. And as we go into these next chapters, unless we understand that first. One more quote, and then I'll pray from um, page 140 in the book, about halfway down. Jesus taught us not only how to live for God's glory, but how to die for God's glory. Jesus showed us how to live for God's glory, and he shows us how to die for God's glory. So as we as a church and a group of believers kind of travel through this story these next couple days, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, tomorrow night we're going to sing a hymn called Go to Dark Gethsemane, and one of the lines in that hymn is learn of Jesus Christ to pray. Learn of Jesus Christ To die, As we walk through these final days with Jesus and into the day of his resurrection, uh, just pray that the Holy Spirit would help you understand this is not just a story about him for then and that time. This is a story for me now. That this is a story that my faith is built upon and he leaves us an example to follow. That as he says to his disciples in the upper, upper room, just as I have done to you, you also ought to do to one another as we love each other As we humble ourselves, as we die to ourselves, so that we can be raised to newness of life in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us so that we could live with you forever and ever. Thank you that he became a servant for us, that he took on the form of a servant for us. To stoop down and to cleanse us, to wash us from our filthy stains of sin. Lord, more importantly, we thank you that after he did that, he resumed his place. He ascended to your right hand where he reigns and rules with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. God, we rejoice that he will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. We thank you that when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Remind us over these next few days to walk with him. To obey him, to follow him, to act like him, to live like him, and to die like him. Knowing that our ultimate life and our ultimate hope is not in this world or in this life or in our things. But our life is in Christ. And when he appears, we will also appear with him in glory. Give us grace for this day. Give us grace for the coming days as we remember and celebrate together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. That's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.